0: We learned that we must keep prayer's preparedness, that the only way we can live rightly considering Christ's return is if we keep spiritually alert in prayer. In the upper room, we were reminded that we must keep prayers' protection, that our provision and protection in life is and must be only found in relying on God in prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw first that we must keep prayer's passion, uh, for victorious prayer must be marked by passionate emotions of honest weakness, holy motivation, humble submission, and heartfelt urgency. We also saw in the garden that we must keep prayer's peace, that when we are faithful to watch and pray, then God enables us to exhibit a divine calm during chaos. Last week, in the courtyard of the high priest, we were reminded to keep prayer's piety, because if we do not humble ourselves in prayer, there's no telling the depths of spiritual failure to which we can fall. We saw that with Peter. Well, tonight we move on to the cross. Jesus, by now, has been sent through three unjust trials, Jewish trials. He's been tossed back and forth between Pilate and Herod and eventually has been handed over to be crucified by taking the place of Barabbas, a guilty insurrectionist, in murder. And so by the time of our passage that we're going to be looking at tonight, in Luke 23, 32 through 46, Jesus has left the city of Jerusalem and is walking up Calvary's hill. And it is there at Calvary's cross that we will see one final and most fundamental principle regarding prayer, that we ought to keep prayer's pricelessness. Prayer is a privilege bought by Christ. And so, before we go any further, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the chance we have to dive into Your Word. We thank You for how it shows us always and ever the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, for what He accomplished on the cross. And we pray that what He has done, as He surrendered up His Spirit to You in victory, we pray that that would add a greater weight to these moments that we spend in prayer. Help us understand, Father, the great privilege that prayer is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we start looking at these verses, I want to remind you of something very important related to prayer. It is something that can instantly kill anyone's prayer life. It's mentioned in Isaiah 59, 1-2, which reads, "...Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor His ear dull, that it cannot hear." But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words, there's something that's very important, very important that we need to think about when it comes to prayer, something that instantly makes all prayer empty and meaningless, and that is unforgiven sin. God is a holy, holy, holy God. And if a man, woman, or child ever attempts to come to him in prayer with sin that is unforgiven and unpaid for, God tells us here that he will not listen. He says that he will hide his face. He will hide his face if we attempt to approach him in our sin. Now there have been many ways that people have tried to deal with the problem of their sin, but I don't think that any of us here tonight could say that they have done as much as King Solomon did in 1 Kings chapter 8. See, in 1 Kings 8, King Solomon had just brought all the nation of Israel together to dedicate the newly built temple to the Lord. And listen to what Solomon does just before his prayer. 1 Kings 8, verse 5 says, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing, listen to this, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted nor numbered. Picture that in your mind, that they could not even count how many sacrifices were offered. Solomon was doing everything he could to deal with the issue of sin in relationship to prayer, even by means of the way that God had directed through sacrifices. And so he offers up an innumerable number of sacrifices to God, which, by the way, must have been well over a couple hundred thousand, because the Jews could easily keep track of that many, as we'll see later on in 1 Kings. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands and, and, and hundreds of thousands of sacrifices. All sacrificed to pave the way for the prayer that Solomon is about to give in 1 Kings 8. And this is what, first, this is what Solomon prays for in 1 Kings 8, 27-53. A lot of verses, I'll sum it up for you. It's this. When we pray, please hear us. When we pray, please hear us. When we seek justice from oppressors and we pray, please hear us. When we seek deliverance from enemies and pray, please hear us. Solomon says when we seek food in famine, healing from illness, victory in battle, Lord, please hear us. And when we seek forgiveness from our sins and pray to you, God, please hear us. And this is how Solomon finishes out... His, his prayer for God to hear, he finishes out his prayer with this amen. First Kings 8.63 Solomon offered his peace offerings to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. They could count that many. So think of that. 142,000 sacrifices already preceded by an innumerable amount of sacrifices all to achieve this end goal. That when we pray... God would hear. Well, guess what? In the next chapter, God comes to Solomon, and after looking at all those innumerable sacrifices, all those thousands upon thousands of dedications and offering, God basically says, if that's the basis, if you obey me, I'll listen, but if you turn aside, I will not. In other words, all of those sacrifices guaranteed nothing. They could not pay for sin. They could not guarantee forgiveness and access to God in prayer. They could do nothing. See, there had to be an even greater sacrifice, an infinite sacrifice to pay for our sins and to guarantee at all times, no matter what, complete and total access to God in heaven through prayer. It is with that reality in mind, I believe, that Luke carefully crafts his crucifixion account of Christ. He carefully crafts it around, as we'll see tonight, the idea of forgiveness. An idea of forgiveness that drives itself purposely towards an application and a stunning lesson on prayer. So with that in mind, let's begin by looking at first forgiveness that is needed. Forgiveness that is needed. This is in verses 32 through 33. We've already looked at this section in our Good Friday service, so don't worry, I'm not doing a repeat. I won't go into all the details. I simply want you to notice for tonight the close association made here between Christ and sinners. So look at verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death. Where? Or how? With Him. Verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him, and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. So notice, Luke is underlining the fact that Jesus is headed to the place of his crucifixion alongside of sinners. And in fact, our author Luke wants to emphasize this fact of Christ's close association with sinners so much that unlike Matthew and Mark's account, the fact that Jesus is hung between two criminals is mentioned right at the very beginning of Luke's account in advance of every other conversation that will follow. This is done to emphasize Christ's identification that he had with sinners in his death as well as that he had with his, in, in his life, right? He was a friend to tax collectors and sinners. As Isaiah 53, 12 prophesied, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. So Luke is reminding us here of the forgiveness that is needed, of the sins that need to be paid for. By literally surrounding Jesus with sinners from the beginning of this count even into the very end. So we've seen forgiveness needed. The next section is forgiveness offered in verses 34 through 43. It says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's interesting is when you study the gospel of Luke, Luke emphasizes Jesus offering forgiveness an awful lot, almost more than any other gospel writer. In Luke 5, 15 through or uh, Luke 5:17 through 26, Jesus heals a paralytic who was let down through the roof, uh, in order to highlight the moment in which Jesus would say to this man, "Man, your sins are forgiven." And of course, you remember the leaders were like, "What? How can this guy just do this? Right? Only God can forgive sins." Likewise, in Luke 7:48, he takes a woman who interrupts a dinner party to anoint his feet with oil, and he says to her, "Your sins are forgiven." Beyond that, he blesses both her and later on in Luke eight forty eight, a woman he healed with a discharge of blood for many years with the peace that only forgiveness can bring, as well. And in every one of those circumstances, every one of those narratives, you can tell that Luke carefully crafts the story to highlight that exact moment when Jesus offers forgiveness to that person. Well, in like fashion, Luke is. Uh, is the only one of the gospel writers that mentions Jesus' prayer here for forgiveness of his executors because Luke is building up to a dramatic lesson on forgiveness and prayer, as we'll see in a second. So Luke records Jesus' wonderful prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what sinners is Jesus praying for? Well, to make it clear, Luke proceeds by mentioning three groups of sinners that surrounded Jesus that day around the cross. When Jesus is praying this prayer, he's offering forgiveness to the sinners that are beneath him. We see them in verses, at the end of verse 34, into verse 35, it says, and they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen ones. So that's one group of sinners we see, the sinners that are scoffing him beneath the cross. Jesus is also offering forgiveness to sinners that come before him. Verse 36-38, through the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There also was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So when Jesus prays, he's offering forgiveness to the sinners, scoffing at him below, mocking him before him, and next, He was also offering forgiveness to sinners that were screaming next to him. That's in verses 39 through 43. It says, And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And by the way, Matthew and Mark both record that both criminals were reviling Jesus, not just one of them saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So both of them, just imagine that. I mean, can you get any harder of heart than someone who's hanging on a cross with nails embedded into their hands and feet, using every ounce of their breath to lift themselves up, take a breath, and then revile the person who's who's hanging next to you? I mean, this is the hardest heart you can imagine from someone. But then... In a most unexpected time, you see God's grace at work in this story because look at verse 40. But the other does what? Rebukes him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Look at that. In an instant, he's a completely different man. He goes from reviling Jesus, right, to to reverencing him. So what's just happened? The answer is a miracle. Just like Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new." He comes. He goes from being a hater of God to being a lover and worshiper of Him. This man just got saved. This man repented and believed. Because look at verse forty two. It says, "And he said." Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, what faith? This man confesses in this moment, even though you might not think about it. He confesses this. Jesus, I believe that you are God's king. I believe that you are Lord. And I believe that death is not the end of you. I believe you're headed towards a kingdom. And I just ask one thing. When you get to that kingdom, don't remember everything I've ever done in life. I have nothing I can cling to. Just remember me. It's a total call for mercy. I have nothing to claim, but be merciful. Remember me. It's all any of us can do. Is just to cry out for mercy and forgiveness. And this is what Jesus says in verse 43. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay? Paradise. That is heaven as second corinthians 12 verse 3 and revelation 2 verse 7 makes clear that place of total bliss in the intimate presence of god this is mind-blowing the immediacy and the eminency of jesus's promise in this moment the thief asks for jesus simply to remember him when he enters into his kingdom someday and jesus says i'll do one better than that today you will be with me in paradise Here Jesus is once again offering total forgiveness, just like he has done so many times in his ministry. At a level of freeness and fullness that's almost beyond imagining. But the question that the narrative of Luke asks us is, how do we know that Jesus' offer of forgiveness is true? That it's effective, and that it's real and powerful. So we've seen forgiveness needed, we've seen forgiveness offered, Now I want you to see forgiveness proved, and that's in verses 44 through 46. As Jesus died on the cross, God accompanies his death with two significant signs that communicate something very important about what Jesus accomplished in that moment of his death. The first is a sign, I would say, is of God's wrath removed. That's in verses 44 through the beginning of verse 45. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, that is high noon, 12 o'clock in the afternoon by our reckoning, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So just as the sun's light was about to reach its fullest strength, Luke says that the sun's light failed. Literally in the Greek, it's turned off. The sun's light ceased, and the entire land is plunged into darkness at high noon for a period of three hours until the ninth hour. That is around three o'clock. So this is shocking, okay? This is unnatural. This is foreboding. Some people, and even if you've ever watched a movie, right, you've seen this interpretation that this darkness at the midday is just a storm cloud that comes in, right? Right? or fog that covers the area, or a sandstorm, or some other natural type of phenomenon. God's Word doesn't give us that option. No. That is not what Luke says at all. Luke says the sun's light failed. And there's confirming evidence of of this event, by the way, in ancient Records. I thought this was interesting. In 221 AD, historian Julius Africanus cites the first century historian Thallus when Thallus records from the nearby area of Syria at the time of Christ's death on the Passover day, quote, on the whole world there pressed a fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. You see, this was not a natural darkness, that came upon the land. This was a supernatural darkness. For three full hours, the whole land fell into deep darkness at midday. I saw some pretty scary stuff during 2020. I don't know about you, but I never saw that. And in 2020, even secular newspapers were writing, using the words, this seems apocalyptic. Can you imagine the sun's light failing at noonday for three hours? You don't need to know anything about the Bible to know that's not good. But for the Jewish sensitivity, this would have been absolutely terrifying. You see, the Old Testament always describes the sun going black when the great day of God's almighty wrath comes to descend upon the sinful earth. Joel 2, 1-2 and 10-11 through 11 says the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It is the day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Or Amos 5.18, why would you have the day of the Lord come? It is darkness and not light, gloom with no bright- brightness in it. Or Zephaniah 1.15 describes the great day of the Lord by saying it is a day of wrath, is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So as those Jews see the sun go black at midday and the the day become as night, they would have been struck with terror because they knew that it meant God's wrath had come. And horror of horrors, god's wrath had come on what nation israel israel this wasn't supposed to be no the day of the lord was supposed to be like the day of the passover right when darkness fell upon the pagan people the people of egypt the people that needed to be judged not israel we're god's people we're good But here Jerusalem, Israel, and all the land is pledged into pitch darkness. I want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine the enormous immensity of what verses 44 and 45 are described. Heaven and earth were testifying that God himself had descended upon the nation of Israel to deal out death and judgment for sin. The last time that God's judgment cloaked in darkness fell upon a nation, every firstborn son in Egypt died. And so doubtless, with a collective gasp, the entire nation prepared itself for the crushing strike that it knew was coming. Only what's interesting is nothing happens. Three hours later, the darkness departs. But they're not consumed. Through three hours of horrific darkness, heaven and earth continued to testify that God himself had come to judge sin in wrath, and yet... At 3 o'clock, as the priests in the temple were supposed to kill the first Passover lamb, suddenly the supernatural darkness is lifted. God's wrath departs. Everybody's looking around. How are you still alive? Israel had just been passed over. How? Because the perfect Passover lamb had just died. As Luke will describe very soon, at the very moment that the Passover lambs would have been sacrificed in the temple, Jesus gives up his life, and the darkness of God's wrath is lifted. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our perfect Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. God's wrath had visited Israel, but it was poured out full strength upon his Son and not on sinners. So what Jesus Experienced in the utter darkness of the three hours, the greatest minds of men could not even begin to express or conceive. He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. And though He knew no sin, He became sin for us. He became a curse for us, and it pleased the Lord to crush Him. So make no mistake, God's infinite, all-consuming wrath descended on the earth that day, all those years ago. But in the hellish darkness of those hours, it fell upon and was taken full strength by God's Son for sinners. That's what happened at the cross. This is why Christ's death was accompanied by a sign of wrath removed. God's wrath had come, but it had been taken full strength by God's Son. A perfect sacrifice had finally come. Total forgiveness had finally been won. To what consequence? Look at the end of verse 4. 45 Luke records and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So Matthew makes it clear that all of this happened at once, at the moment that Jesus yielded up his spirit and died, the darkness departed and the curtain of the temple was ripped into from top to bottom. Imagine the shock that this would have been for the priests who were serving that day. As the darkness finally departs, the shocked priests begin to slowly prepare once again for slaughtering the Passover lambs. Only just as they are about to begin, suddenly a loud tearing sound comes from inside the holy place. The priests rush in only to see the 60 foot high, 30 foot wide, thick curtain being ripped from top to bottom. And the imagery for them would have been shocking. For century after century, that curtain had signified the spiritual separation that stood between the holy, holy, holy God and sinners like you and me. And now by ripping the curtain in two from top to bottom, God was declaring to Israel and to all the world that the old covenant separation between God and his people because of sin had now been removed by means of Christ's sacrifice. There was now no separation between God and those who were in Christ Jesus by grace through faith. God is now free to dwell with men by means of His Spirit and men are now free to draw near to God by means of prayer. So we pray. God, when I pray to you, please hear. You have a guarantee from heaven that when you pray... In Christ He hears you. Prayer is a privilege bought by Christ. That's why Hebrews ten nineteen through 22 encourages us by saying, Therefore, brothers, have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh since we have a great high priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water in other words believers in christ do not let your sin keep you from drawing near to god in prayer for your sin has been paid for completely by the blood of jesus christ The curtain has been opened for you, and so draw near in confidence to the throne of grace. Christ has opened a way so that even on your worst days, you are welcomed into the very presence of God, just as Christ is. The ripping of the old covenant curtain makes it clear that sin has been paid, forgiveness has been offered, and access to God's presence is available. Through Him and through Him alone, you can come to the Father. No more temple. No more curtain. No more ceremony or sacrifice ever again needed. Full atonement as we sing, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. So that's why we as believers need to keep prayer's pricelessness. We look at prayer as something that's no big deal, right? This ought to be one of the most mysterious meetings we ever have as a church. To think that people like you and me, in our sin, and right now, gather together with the boldness to think that I can pray and God will hear me is a miracle that only Jesus Christ could accomplish by his death on the cross. Prayer is a privilege, a blood bought privilege bought by Christ. Let us not take it lightly. By Christ's single sacrifice and victorious life, God's wrath can be removed and your relationship with Him can be restored. You can come to the Father through Christ. And so those of you that have come to Christ through faith, I encourage you all this evening, let's do that. Let us come, let us come and keep prayer's pricelessness.